0: Today's New Testament reading comes from Matthew thirteen, thirty one to thirty three. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. So it is the smallest of all seeds, yet When it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dove. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Today's sermon scripture reading is John chapter 18, verses 33 through 38. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. Please pray with me. Lord, please speak to us through your words today. Um, Please teach us and guide us and, and bring us closer to you. Thank you for loving us, God. In your name, Jesus, amen. Today, we are going to be talking about the kingdom of God. This is a massive topic, but we're just going to take a little peek into what Jesus tells us that his kingdom looks like. Then after that, after talking about that a bit, we will look at what this means for us as his followers today to participate in his kingdom here on earth. First off, I just wanna talk a little bit about the meaning of the phrase, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is also referred to in the Bible as the kingdom of heavens, means the same thing. And it is quite literally what it seems to be. Our God is the king, and he has his kingdom. He has always had it, he has it now, and he will continue to have it in the future. And right now, we're at an interesting point in history. So God has always existed. And at some point, he created creation, right? He created angels, he created human beings, us. Some of his angels rebelled against him. Humans, we have rebelled against God as well. And we have created our own kingdoms in opposition to God. We've created kingdoms of this world with our own kings, with our own idols, kingdoms not of God. In the Old Testament, we see God bringing his kingdom here on Earth through the Israelites, right? But ultimately, the Israelites chose to reject God and reject him bringing his kingdom to Earth through them. And so Jesus, the true king of the universe, came himself to this world to bring his kingdom here to bring his kingdom into it. When we look at his life, Jesus is so absurdly different from everyone around him. He was so loving, kind, humble, caring, in a mix of cultures at the time, right? They were under Roman occupation. So in that mix of cultures, Roman, Jewish um, cultures that at the time valued pride and power, not humility and love. And Jesus lived perfectly He died and rose again, offered forgiveness to us, and he's also offered new birth to us. And in this new birth, he invites us to become citizens of his kingdom, right? So God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, has now broken into this kingdom of our world through Jesus. And when we become followers of Christ, our allegiance, our our core allegiance, changes from this world to God's kingdom. And so right now, we live in what is sometimes called the already, but not yet. As we said, Jesus has broken into this world, into this kingdom, and he's saved us. And we know his victory over all darkness, over all evil spiritual forces, over all evil human powers, is assured, as it says in the Bible. He will be completely victorious. But at the moment, this victory is not yet fully realized. And so we as Christians here at IPC live in an interesting moment in history. We've become citizens of God's kingdom, and yet we continue to live in our worldly kingdom. God's victory is assured and promised. Jesus has already defeated evil and death. But there's still time until that full defeat of these things. And so, we live in the already, but not yet. In the victory of Christ that has already happened, but in the waiting period for the full accomplishment of that victory to take place. This is the point in history we can locate ourselves in. And so, moving forward, let's look again at verses 36 through 38 of the passage we just read. Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. Pilate's response to Jesus represents the attitude of our Western world, the world we live in here in Switzerland, shockingly well. Even though he said this about 2,000 years ago, it could have been written yesterday or posted on Twitter or spoken to someone by hundreds of millions of different Westerners right here in Europe or in in North America. The irony in this passage is supposed to be thick. Pilate, in the presence of God himself, in his arrogance, hypothetically asks, what is truth? To the world that we live in, this is wisdom. Pilate probably thought himself wise, clever for responding to Jesus in this way. The kingdom of our Western world, our context here in Switzerland in 2021, often tells us that truth is relative. Truth is what you make it, or make your own truth. Always lead to God and always are good. Pilate's response to Jesus is a wildly accurate picture of our context here today. But in verse 36, Jesus says his kingdom is not of this world. He says his kingdom is from another place. And he says the reason he has come into this world, this kingdom, is to spread the truth the truth about himself, the truth about the true king, the true and eternal kingdom. Now, if Jesus says that his kingdom is from another place, then we expect it to look differently. And so I want to spend time looking at what Jesus says about his own kingdom. I believe learning about this can be very helpful for us as Christians. It teaches us more about the character of God, who he is. It helps us have hope in God and for our future as Christians. And it helps us more to understand um, how we, as citizens of God's kingdom, are to interact here in the world, how we're to act in our daily lives. Now there's plenty of passages about the kingdom of God, but we have time just for a short passage from Matthew. In this passage, Jesus' audience is most likely, mostly Jews, um, probably with some Pharisees there as well, wanting to hear what this new teacher has to say. It says, many came to him, so many that he had to sit out on a boat, and the crowd gathered around on the beach to listen to him. So in Matthew 13, 31 through 32, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field." Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. Jesus explains his parable pretty straightforwardly. Like he says, the mustard seed is the tiniest of seeds. It's so small and insignificant, but it grows quickly, and it quickly becomes the largest plant in the garden. Even birds will come and sit on it so big. So in the same way, Jesus' kingdom that he's now bringing to earth has begun tiny, like the mustard seed. It's begun with him, with Jesus being here, and then it grows out to his disciples. And from there, it will grow and grow until and, and it's like a tree, until it's huge. It will spread throughout the world, and countless peoples will join like the birds and become part of the kingdom. But I do think there's a bit more going on here in this analogy. A bit of subtext to Jesus' analogy that's easy for us to miss. And I think this subtext will help us see a little bit into just how different the kingdom of God is. The mustard plant was a very strange plant for Jesus to compare his kingdom with. Mustard was seen as a weed by the Jews. People did not like it. It grew all over the wild. There might have even been some right, right by where Jesus was preaching, right, maybe even pointed to it, like the mustard seed. If you let it into your garden, it would quickly take over, pretty much ruining all of the other plants. In the Talmud, which is an ancient commentary on the Old Testament, which is seen as, yeah, to hold a lot of weight, it was actually prohibited to plant mustard in your garden at all. So it was forbidden to have mustard in your garden. So when Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a mustard seed, he's comparing his kingdom to what was seen as an invasive weed. For those listening to Jesus, they must have been shocked. Those starting to get bored or nod off would have looked up, startled. What's this guy doing comparing God's kingdom to that weed To the Pharisees, it may have even seemed heretical to them for Jesus to do this. It seems like Jesus here is referencing a passage in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, referencing Israel or God's kingdom, God says, On the mountain heights of Israel I will plant it. It will produce branches and bear fruit and become a splendid cedar. Birds of every kind will nest in it they will find shelter in the shade of its branches. The Israelites were God's people and his kingdom on earth, right? And, and God is saying in this passage that Israel, his kingdom on earth, will become like a great cedar, a great majestic tree. And in Israel, the birds, which represent the peoples of the, of the world, will come there and they will find rest there. Surely Israel loved this passage. Surely the Pharisees loved this passage, talking about the beauty and the glory of Israel that God will bring into it. Surely it was a point of pride for them. So they probably did not love it when Jesus then said that the kingdom of God was like a mustard seed or a mustard plant, one of the lowliest and most hated plants, kind of the opposite of a cedar, right? Mustard plant, cedar, mustard plant, cedar. Very different. And Jesus is not disagreeing with the passage in Ezekiel that his kingdom will be like a cedar. Right? God himself said that. Jesus himself said that. Of course, Jesus knows that his kingdom is and will be great, the greatest possible. Of course, he knows his kingdom will be majestic like a cedar and will protect those who come to it. But Jesus uses this opportunity to flip upside down some of the expectations of his listeners and of us here today as well. This great and perfect kingdom, beautiful like a cedar, will also have some unexpected attributes. It's going to be like a mustard plant as well. The mustard seed is hated, looked down upon, forbidden. And you can disagree with me, but to me, it seems that Jesus is saying that through this text that the kingdom of God is going to be made of the low, the poor, the downtrodden, the disliked of society, the mustard plants or the weeds of society. God's kingdom will be formed out of those who are seen as lesser, the humble. And, and Jesus supports this right through countless other passages and through countless um, actions of his own. And this is how God's kingdom is going to grow, not from the great cedar seeds, not from the powerful or the prideful, the people our world sees as great, but it will grow from the mustard seeds. This almost seems like a direct jab at the Pharisees, who Jesus has been specifically refuting for their pride. Referencing the Pharisees, he tells his followers, don't practice righteousness in front of others to be seen, but do it secretly for God. He says, when you give to the poor, do it secretly as well as not to be prideful. In Matthew 6, 5, Jesus says, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. So Jesus' kingdom is is really not of this world. And the way his kingdom works upends what our world's wisdom tells us. Now, one last thing I think that Jesus does with this analogy. The Jews believed that the Messiah was going to come in a show of power. They thought that he would come in war and redeem the Jews from their Roman occupation. They thought his rescue of them would be a top-down show of power. Like a great powerful cedar would the Messiah come and rescue his people. But here, Jesus says his kingdom is not growing in that way. His His kingdom is starting small, from the bottom. It's beginning here humbly, like a tiny seed. And from this humble position will it grow. From Christ's humility, from our God, from the Son, who humbled himself to become a man, will God's kingdom begin to grow and begin to take over the world. From Christ's death will his kingdom grow. Not through a show of power and war, as was expected, but through a a show of humility and love. And God's kingdom will continue to grow through history, right, through his people, through love and humility lived out by them. Christians all over the world, spreading God's infectious love. Like the mustard weed, it will grow quickly and it will be unstoppable, taking over place to place. And it is in this kingdom, built from the lowly, that the birds will come and perch in its branches. In this kingdom, that people will be safe and those from other nations will come and find rest. Sometimes the kingdom of God is called the upside-down kingdom. God flips what is important in our world on its head. He flips our expectations. Jesus came to save us, not through war, but through death. God's kingdom is built from the humble and the loving, not the high and mighty. Humility and love are valued in God's kingdom, not pride and power. Now on that note, let's just transition to talking about us today. We live in a kingdom that is in many ways similar to the one that Jesus was in. We have people like Pilate telling us that truth is relative. Our culture worships pride and power. Celebrities, politicians, businesses do and get away with horrible things. Even atrocities, right, all over the world. But we let it slide. Our governments, our world lets it slide because they have power, they have money, and and they can do what they want. And so how do we live here at IPC as members of God's kingdom? What is the parable saying about how we should live our lives today? If the kingdom of God is built from the humble, then I think it's, it's pretty clear that how we're supposed to act today. The way that our king, Jesus, came into the world and completely changed our world was through love and humility. We're coming up on Advent here next week and then Christmas um, soon where we celebrate Jesus, our king, being born as a human. Our king, the king of the entire universe, um, being born in a dirty, smelly, Animal stable. Our king first living his life as a carpenter or a brickmaker, living in very humble circumstances. Then at age 30, Jesus transitioned to his full time ministry, where he spent his time with all different kinds of people. He spent time with the powerful, with Pharisees and tax collectors, and he gave extra care and attention to those on the outskirts of society the poor, the sick the possessed, prostitutes, sinners, children, women. He didn't spend his time on earth living in a palace, living in comfort, as is fitting for a king. But he chose to humble himself and to die for us. He chose to let Pilate mock him to his face, saying, what is truth? Jesus, the king, lived a life of love and humility. And so if we today measure our, the success of our lives, I think we need to measure it against this stick. We can't measure it by our wealth, or our friends, or our power, or our pleasure. Our success needs to be measured by our love for God, and, and in that, loving others, and in living humbly out of that. In his time, Jesus stood in stark contrast to Herod, who was the ruler of this area of Rome, of Judea, at the time of Jesus' birth. Herod spent his life making great constructions for his own glory. He built a great port, which would, have been, which would have been seen as a wonder of the world at the time, called Caesarea Maritima. He built an immense fortress right by Jerusalem on this big hill, which would have been seen as impossible to construct at the time. And in doing so, he killed thousands and thousands of people. Thousands of slaves died building this fortress. He also renovated the Jewish temple, making it another wonder of the world, using such massive stones that archaeologists today still don't understand how how they did it. When he heard a king was being born, Jesus was being born, he ordered for all the children around Jesus' age to be murdered. Everything he did was for his own glory. He wanted to be seen as a God, someone who did the impossible, someone who could control and overcome nature itself. And so, are we living like we're a part of God's kingdom? Or are we living like we're a part of this world's kingdom? Are we seeking to love God and others in humility? Are we seeking to live the way Jesus did? Is the way we treat our family, work our job, think about life, spend our time, is it filtered through love and humility? I think this is the way of of God's kingdom. Or are we creating glory for ourselves, like Herod? Are we constructing our lives in a way that brings us glory? Are we sacrificing others, like Herod did, at the the altar of ourselves, basically? Are we building monuments to ourselves through our lives, our jobs, our relationships, our dreams? Now, I want to end with an encouragement for us, here at IPC, to put God's kingdom first. In a passage talking about the worries of life, of worrying about having enough food to eat or having clothes to wear, Jesus says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. We live in one of the wealthiest places on earth. Relatively speaking, we as a church are made up of some of the wealthiest people on the entire planet. Food and clothes probably aren't big worries for most of us. And yet we let ourselves get so distracted by by much less vital, much less important things. We're we're people and we're messed up, right? And and there's always something that we're worried about. We get worried about our looks, our family status, what others think of us. Um, Those with children, right? We worry about our children, their education, how they're being raised. I know I personally get very distracted by the world. I Very often, I don't put God's kingdom first. I put my personal comfort above God. I even put entertainment sometimes above God. And often I would say, right, with my words, I would say that I'm putting God's kingdom first, but subtly, the way I act and live my life, I'm, I'm not doing that, right? I'm kind of shoving God's kingdom into the side and trying to build the kingdom of Nathan, First, above God's kingdom. But Jesus is calling us to put His kingdom first. Let's not put it second. Let's not put it under our jobs, under our families, under our comfort, or under our friends. Let's put God's kingdom first. And if we do that, God says He will take care of us, right? He says we don't need to worry. He's good and He's faithful. And so to end us, I want to encourage you all this week, meditate on on what it would mean for you to seek the kingdom of God first. Pray and ask God to, to show you truly what this means in your life. We're all citizens of God's kingdom as Christians, and we live in a world, a kingdom that's hostile to God. God's kingdom is different from the one we live in, as Jesus tells Pilate the values of God's kingdom are much different. In God's eyes, love and humility are important. And through these things will God's kingdom grow. And like mustard, once it takes root in a garden, God's kingdom is growing quickly, it's growing large, and it is unstoppable. Let's seek God's kingdom first. Let's remember who we truly are, citizens of God's kingdom, And then from that point, let's live our lives in humility and love to others. Please pray with me. God, today and this week and this month, please help us to put your kingdom first. Please convict us and and look at our hearts and help us to reflect on, on what we truly live for, why we do what we do, why we think what we think. Um, yeah, yeah, and sanctify us, God. And, and let us just seek you first above everything else in our lives, God. In your name, Jesus.